It's Friday, June 15th, 1722, in Port Roseway, Nova Scotia. A large fishing schooner called the Milton sails into port early on a bright, clear-skied afternoon. The captain of the ship, Philip Ashton, stands by the bow and surveys the peaceful harbour. There are already a cluster of fishing vessels moored here, and like the Milton, most of them bear New England flags. Ashton is satisfied with the morning's catch. He and his crew have been hauling in cod south of Cape Sable since sunrise. Now they have returned with a hold bursting with fresh fish, ready for curing and shipping off to Europe. Mentally, he's already counting the profit. Before setting off, Ashton had been warned by other fishermen to keep an eye out for pirates who have been reported operating in the region. These desperate villains have been known to plunder vessels such as the Milton. It's not the fish in the hold they're after. It's the experienced sailors on board that are the real prize. As his ship drops anchor, Ashton offers silent thanks to the heavens that they have returned safely from the sea. Close by is a familiar vessel, a larger schooner with ten guns. Ashton waves a greeting to the captain. Then, he notices another ship, anchored in the centre of the harbour. This one isn't familiar. Its masthead is without a flag. Straining his eyes, he makes out the name painted on the stern. The Rebecca. She appears to be armed with just two cannons and four swivel guns. A trader, perhaps, importing tackle and provisions from England. Or maybe chartered to transport salt from France. Ashton's train of thought is interrupted by the sight of a small rowboat being launched from the mystery vessel. Crewed by four men, all dressed in fishermen's smocks. They row towards Ashton's schooner. Ashton imagines the men have been sent from the ship's captain to request some kind of help. Intrigued and happy to assist fellow sailors, Ashton waves them aboard. It is not until their boots clamber onto his ship's deck that he realizes his dreadful mistake. No sooner are they on board that the four men throw off their smocks, revealing pistols and daggers strapped to their chests and cutlasses strung from their belts. Ashton barely has time to think. Without hesitation and with ferocious savagery, the interlopers attack Ashton and his crew. Despite there being only four invaders, the crew of the Milton are hopelessly outmatched. The largely unarmed fishermen are unprepared and their attackers fight like demons. One pounces on Ashton. He grabs him from behind and presses a blade to his neck. Certain he is about to have his throat slit, Ashton looks across to the ship from where these men have come. He's horrified to see a black flag being hoisted. Skull and crossbones, the unmistakable flag of pirates. From its central position in the harbour, without warning, 
the pirate ship opens fire on the surrounding vessels. Cannonballs rip into the defenseless fishing boats and traders. On board the Rebecca, swarms of armed men suddenly appear from below deck. It astonishes Ashton that one boat can contain so many hidden pirates. Feeling the sharp metal of the cutlass piercing his skin, Ashton manages to sputter a few words to his assailant. What does your captain want? I am the captain, the pirate starts back at him. My name is Ned Lowe. I want you, I want your men, and I want your ship. Ned Lowe orders the fishermen to surrender immediately, otherwise he'll open their captain's throat. And that's just for starters. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice though, they really mean flavor. Like in your face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either, but it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice, anything but subtle. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. This episode is brought to you by ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people, for employees, for developers, and even your customers, removing frustration and supercharging productivity. On our intelligent platform, AI isn't just a promise. It's happening today. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. To learn more, visit servicenow.com slash AI for people. As the sun sets on the golden age of piracy, in the 1720s, few pirates are still successfully operating on the high seas. Fewer still remain in American waters. Those that persist are growing a reputation for excessive violence and cruelty. 
these desperate criminals, though small in number, continue to cause mayhem across the Caribbean, as well as terrorizing ports and trade lanes along the eastern seaboard. During this period, there is one particular Englishman whose name becomes synonymous with the very worst horrors of piracy. He is Edward Lowe, and tales of the atrocities he inflicts upon his victims will soon become the stuff of nightmares. It's hard to imagine what conditions or events could lead a man to this path in life. Was young Ned Lowe always destined for it? Or could it have been another way? It's the year 1700 in Westminster Palace, London. A grubby ten-year-old boy tosses a pair of dice across the mosaic floor of the ornate central lobby. Rather than throw the urchin out, the palace footmen follow the dice. They're keen to see who has won the game of chance they're playing. Once again, to the amazement of all, the boy has beaten them. The footmen are astounded by his luck but congratulate him as they hand over their farthings. Young Ned Lowe is a familiar sight around the streets of Westminster. He has grown up very close to the Houses of Parliament, although his overcrowded slum dwelling feels like a completely different world to this grand and lofty octagonal room. Although barely literate, Ned has acquired tremendous skill as a pickpocket during his short life, as well as a strong line in confidence tricks. Having inserted himself into the company of these bored servants and palace guards, he is pocketing his winnings when one of them examines his dice a little too closely. These are loaded, the footman declares, weighing the dice in his hand. The boy cheats! The men are outraged at the discovery and demand that the urchin return their coins. But Ned is quick and as quarrelsome as he is crafty. He dashes out of the door before the footman can grab him. But first, he turns and spits on the polished palace floors before fleeing. Ned comes from a large family of thieves. Charles Johnson wrote in his General History of the Pirates that at age seven, his older brother taught him to steal, cheat, and fight. Ned became highly proficient in all three and was soon known as a terror throughout the neighborhood. But apart from these few colorful sketches, we know very little about Ned's upbringing in London. But clearly, he takes to the sea. He first appears in the historical record almost ten years later and on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. Eric J. Dolan is the author of Black Flag's Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. We don't know a lot about Ned Lowe's early beginnings. Basically, he was born in London. Don't have much information on his first few years, maybe into his teens or early 20s, but he ultimately made his way to Boston in 1710. And after getting there, he got a job in the Boston shipyards as a rigger, which is somebody that bears the mass, the rigging, the sail, sort of gets the ship ready to go. And in 1714, he married a woman named Eliza Marble probably a local Boston woman. Uh, they joined a church, although we have no indication that Edward Lowe was particularly religious. Certainly his later behavior seems to go against being a religious man. 
But they were married for a couple of years and we know very little about their marriage. But unfortunately, they had a son that died in infancy. Whether steady work on Boston's docks and a loving family might have become the tempestuous young man, we'll never know. The death of Ned and Eliza's son has a devastating effect on them both. In his grief, Ned's behavior becomes even more antisocial than before. He picks fights with strangers in taverns and even with co-workers at the shipyard. It costs him his job and he struggles to find new employment. However, in 1719, Eliza becomes pregnant once more. This time she gives birth to a daughter who they christen Elizabeth. Ned's joy at becoming a father again is short-lived though. His wife dies soon after giving birth, leaving him to raise a baby daughter alone. Apparently the responsibility of being a single parent is not something that Ned Lowe can manage for long. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Pirate Queens, The Lives of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. His first child, a son, died as an infant, while his second child, a daughter, survived, but his wife, Eliza, died in childbirth. And Ned Lowe pretty much just goes absolutely mad with grief. He up and abandons his daughter, that's what the story tells us, and this is when he goes into a world of piracy. Now, one of the questions we have is, well, what happened to his daughter? There aren't actually any records of this, but in the 18th century colonial America, if a father was widowed, the children would go to the next set of living relatives, coupled relatives, usually the grandparents or perhaps an aunt and an uncle. And this is because it was not normal, it was not seemly, it was not expected for a single father to take care of the children, especially if one was a girl. The idea was a girl needed to be raised by a woman, so that way she could learn how to be a proper woman in society, regardless of what her social class was. This is what most likely happened, that Ned Lowe's wife's Eliza's family took the daughter. Soon after leaving his two-year-old daughter in Boston, Ned Lowe set out for a life at sea. According to later accounts, he spoke often of his decision to abandon little Elizabeth, though. Whenever he did, it was always with intense shame and regret. Within a year or two, Ned finds himself working as a bayman, an illegal logger, in one of the harshest landscapes imaginable. A place where labor, drunkenness, and death can occupy his tortured mind. It's 1721, in the Bay of Honduras, Central America. Gripping an axe handle tight in his fists, Ned ignores the swarms of mosquitoes and continues hacking at the dark hardwood trees growing along coastal swampland. His muscles ache from long hours of toil and his calloused hands have gone numb. All day the brutal Honduran sun has been beating down upon him and 12 other sweating, bare-chested English baymen. Under it, Ned's usually fair skin has blistered and turned a vicious red. Ned and the others are collecting logwood, a rare tree that has become highly valued for its deep red heart that can be used to create luxurious black and purple dyes. Highly valued amongst the aristocrats of Europe. Now, 
illegally exported from Spanish territories, it turns huge profits for English merchants. As Ned and the others haul the logs back to their ship, he reflects bitterly on how all his punishing labor is making fortunes for other people. Their only relief is the potent local liquor that keeps them constantly inebriated. In recent weeks, Ned has been riling up his fellow Bayman into a spirit of revolt. Away from the ship's captain, he has been spreading the idea that they should mutiny and sell these logs for themselves. By the time Ned and the others return to the ship, they are hungover and starving. After loading the logs on board, Ned tells the captain that they are ready to eat. But the captain refuses to feed the exhausted men. He is concerned that they do not have much time left before the Spanish coast guards appear to prevent their escape. And so he offers Ned and the others another bottle of rum to share between them. Once it is drunk, get straight back to work. With his belly empty and his skin screaming with sunburn, Ned explodes into a rage. He reminds the captain that they are not slaves. He demands that the whole crew be fed before another tree is felled. The captain refuses. By now the entire crew has gathered around the two men. They know that Ned is on the verge of mutiny and are all curious to see the outcome of the escalating confrontation. Ned's burnt face has turned even redder in fury. To some crew members, he now resembles the devil as he rages at the calm but immovable captain. But even they are shocked by what Ned Lowe does next. In a quick but forceful movement, Ned snatches a loaded musket from the hands of a nearby crew member. Then he turns back towards the captain and fires. Everyone on board is stunned by the action. They stare at the captain, expecting him to collapse to the floor. However, the captain remains standing. But another man standing behind him, slightly to his right, drops down dead. Ned's shot missed the captain by a whisker, but it struck this other poor soul through the head. Battle erupts as every man on board suddenly takes a side. The majority of men remain loyal to the captain. They charge at Ned Lowe and the 12 other men who form his gang. Knowing that they are outnumbered, Ned orders his men to take to a longboat and quickly make their escape. Ned Lowe and several of the men who followed him pretty much have to escape. So once they are able to kind of run off, they manage to basically take a small ship of their own, although even then it's not exactly a very good situation. Ned Lowe gets in a fight and kills one of the men who's with him, but ultimately they're going to kind of get together and they're going to manage to sail off kind of as their own crew. But they have to really kind of escape on the sly in order to do this because if Ned Lowe has done this mutiny and tried to kill the captain and failed, this should be an automatic death sentence for him from the crew. So the fact that he was able to take some men and manage to successfully escape, even with some casualties, shows that he was able to have the skills to do this. It shows his ruthlessness in his skills as a pirate. Ned and his rogue band of misfits are now fugitives from justice. 
but this is a life they take to with savage enthusiasm. Soon after this, Ned Lowe officially becomes a pirate when he and his crew steal a small but robust Rhode Island sloop. In the process, they kill another man. But Ned remains unrepentant. He informs his crew that this is how they mean to go on. They will take this new ship and go in her, make a black flag and declare war against the world. Like a hungry pack of wolves, his small band of desperados howl in agreement. However, Ned Lowe will soon find out that turning pirate in 1721 is not as easy as it once was. But having started on his current course, what choice does he have? At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings, and voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. The golden age of piracy broadly defined started in the late 1600s and went to the mid 1720s. The part of the golden age that sprang up after the end of the war of the Spanish succession in 1713 is the part that most people are familiar with. That's sort of the pirates of the Caribbean phase, the Blackbeard and Steed Bonnet phase. So Lowe was coming at the tail end of the golden age of piracy and what had happened is starting in about 1718, 1719, which was a few years before Lowe even entered upon the scene, there was a major crackdown on piracy, both in the colonies and from the mother country. England got much more serious about sending out naval ships to pursue pirates. And at this time, hundreds of pirates were hanged on both sides of the Atlantic. In the colonies alone, up and down the coast in major ports, there were roughly 68 pirates that were hanged during these last years, so it became a much more dangerous pursuit. In these dog days of Atlantic piracy, Ned Lowe and his crew find that they will have to fight harder and even more ruthlessly if they are to survive. And they'll need to keep moving and switching ships if they are to evade the many naval vessels hunting for pirates around the West Indies. Ned orders his crew to set sail towards the Cayman Islands. He's been informed that other pirates are thriving there, even in these harsh times. It turns out to be well-timed. On their arrival, Lowe encounters one of the most successful pirates still at large, the infamous George Lowther. Lowther has become something of a legend ever since staging an audacious mutiny off the Gambian coast. Having seized a Royal African Company ship, manipulating a British army captain, and press-ganging the squad of soldiers into his crew, Lowther proceeded to pillage numerous vessels, 
making every man serving under him modestly rich. Now, he's travelled to the Grand Cayman in his newest ship, the Happy Delivery. A formidable 100-ton sloop with eight cannons and ten swivel guns. When Ned arrives at the island, he sees the Happy Delivery moored in the harbour. Lothar possesses a powerful ship and a large crew. Knowing their safety in numbers, he takes his own small rabble and approaches Lowther as a potential ally. Paying his compliments to the pirate captain, Ned declares himself an admirer and offers to throw his lot in with them. Lowther responds warmly, and soon their crews are getting drunk together and sharing tales of devilry upon the high seas. The two men join forces, and Ned is appointed to be lieutenant upon the happy delivery. Rather than see this as a demotion, Ned is glad to be learning the trade from a far more experienced pirate. You have to remember, Edward Lowe had only just become a pirate. This is not something that he'd been doing for a long time. He had just gone into the profession. Now, you don't need to be an apprentice pirate to learn how to plunder other ships, but there are certain tricks of the trade. And I'm sure that having Lowe observe Lowther as they're attacking and plundering ships, maybe through conversation over some brandy or wine, then from that, Lowe probably learned a few tricks. Lowther clearly saw something in Lowe and made Lowe his lieutenant. And so it kind of becomes kind of a mentor-mentee relationship. So Lowe is very much taken under Lowther's wing. And from here, he's going to learn not just tactics of how to be a pirate captain, but also tactics and how to get people to surrender. Lowther was quite ruthless, and Lowe learned from this example and would later employ it to his own tactics, but he would take it much further. Over the following months, Lowther's crew raid numerous British-owned vessels around the Bay of Honduras. They strip them of valuables, maroon or press the crews, and leave the stricken crafts burning in their wake. George Lowther isn't averse to violence. It's part of the job. But he uses fear and the threat of violence strategically. He will readily inflict suffering upon the crew of a ship that does not surrender as a warning, or torment any sailor who conceals their wealth. By contrast, Ned Lowe seems to relish dealing out horror for its own sake. One technique he devises involves tying a victim's hands together with a rope between their fingers. Then he sets the rope alight and watches it burn their flesh down to the bone. As he watches screaming men endure this and other tortures, he watches on, unblinking. Lowther even thinks he occasionally catches the flicker of a smile sneaking across Ned's dark features. Ned claims that torture is important for a pirate crew to develop a fearful reputation. But there are many who suspect that Ned is enjoying it a little too much. By May 28, 1722, the weather has warmed, and so the pirates travel north again. Off the coast of Virginia, they capture a large six-gun brigantine named the Rebecca. In what seems like an extravagant show of friendship, George Lowther gives it to Ned as his own. School is out. 
it's time for Ned Lowe to be his own captain once again. Not only will he have this excellent ship, but 44 crew members go with him, including many of Ned's original gang. The two captains go their separate ways, on amicable terms. But there are many in Lothar's remaining crew who wonder about his real motive in releasing Ned from the company. Perhaps he just rid himself of an increasingly wild maniac who might one day turn against him. We'll never know. Now that he is captain of his own crew, Ned heads north up the American coast, where his reputation as a dreaded pirate grows rapidly. Reports of the violent atrocities committed by the captain of the Rebecca spread like wildfire along the New England coastline. But Ned's true notoriety begins on June 3, 1722, when he orders an attack on three vessels near Block Island. They plundered three ships near Block Island, and this is where we get the first indication that Lowe is a rather ruthless individual. Most pirates during the Golden Age didn't viciously maul their victims or kill people that they took over. Occasionally there were fights, but often it was much more peaceful transfer of money and ships. But Lowe took a different tack, and one of the vessels, one of the three vessels that he captured not far from Block Island, had a captain on board named James Cahoon, who was out of Newport, and they viciously stabbed him all over his body. He barely survived. Lowe and his men crippled the three vessels, no doubt to give them more time to get away before the vessels made it back to shore. But eventually Cahoon arrived back in Newport, reported to the local officials that Ned Lowe and his men were offshore plundering and the governor sent out an alarm, called for people to come forward as recruits to have a maritime posse that would chase after Lowe, and about 130 men signed on. These days, American colonies are much quicker to commission pirate hunters. But the hunt for Ned Lowe soon becomes a major news story throughout New England. In Boston, publisher James Franklin, older brother of founding father Benjamin Franklin, writes a scathing attack on the government. He mocks them for their failure to apprehend Lowe in his anti-establishment newspaper. Spurred on by this embarrassment, the Massachusetts government intensifies its manhunt. And Lowe had no idea that he was being pursued at this time, so he continues up the coast, and off Martha's Vineyard, he captured a ship that had about six Indians, Wampanoag Indians on board, as well as a couple of white men, and for reasons that remain unknown, he decapitated at least two of the Indians, one of whom was found a few days later floating in the ocean with his hands and his feet bound and without his head. So Lowe on the Rebecca continues going north. And on June 15th of 1722, he pulls into Roseway, Nova Scotia, which is modern day Sherburne. After months of waging his war against the world, Lowe is eager to expand his force and swell his ranks of fighting men. To do so, he'll need a bigger ship. So when he arrives in Port Roseway, Nova Scotia that morning in June 1722, he intends to do just that. He also has a cunning plan. Sometime after dawn, having already lowered the flag from the mast, he orders that the bulk of his 50 or so crewmen 
hide down in the cabins as the Rebecca sails into port. Anchored in the center of the bay, the ship remains there over the coming hours as one by one, large fishing schooners return from sea and traders come into the harbor. Eventually, the Rebecca is surrounded by ships, many of which would be perfect replacements for the Rebecca. Lowe orders his men into several small rowing boats of four. Wearing fishermen's smocks, they simultaneously approach the most desirable ships in port under the pretense of friendship. One of those vessels is Philip Ashton's Milton. And in the harbor was a guy named Philip Ashton out of Marblehead, which is my hometown. Philip Ashton was the captain of a vessel called the Milton, a fishing vessel. They had been off the Grand Banks, off Cape Sable, catching cod. And Ashton noticed the Rebecca in the distance. He thought it was just a merchant ship because Lowe had hidden most of his men below decks to appear non-menacing. And then Ashton saw a rowboat, essentially, or a longboat coming over to the Milton with four men on board, and it was Lowe and a couple of his men, and he thought they were just paying a social visit. But then when they got to the side of the vessel and they clambered on board, they took out their guns and cutlasses and basically said, you're our prize, we're taking over this ship. So the men on board the Milton were taken over to Lowe's ship, the Rebecca. It isn't long before every fishing crew in the port is surrendering to Ned Lowe's marauders. Most of his victims already know his name and the horror stories associated with him. It's a victory that has been made all the easier due to the ruthless reputation he has been developing for months now. He selects a ship in the harbor that he will take as his new flagship, an 80-ton schooner with 10 guns, which he will rename the Fancy, another homage to the peerless pirate of legend, Henry Avery. The less desirable ships are destroyed. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Ned now wants some of the surviving fishermen to join his crew. He orders that a few men from each ship be held prisoner and taken to sea with his stolen fleet. Philip Ashton and several others are led to the Rebecca at gunpoint. Their hands are shackled so tight they begin to bleed as they are locked inside the cramped cabin steerage. 
On the following day, the prisoners are dragged out of their confines and hauled onto deck. They have had little to eat and their mouths are dry. A quartermaster gives the thirsting men some water. They gulp it down fast. After a short wait, Ned Lowe emerges, striding out of his cabin and crossing the deck to confront his prisoners. By his side, he grips a loaded pistol. He stares fiercely at each man in turn before his eyes finally rest on Ashton. With a flicker of recognition, he takes a step closer and, after a menacing silence, the pirate captain leans in and asks Ashton a question he is not expecting. Are you a married man? Ashton doesn't know how to respond. In his weakened state, the question confuses him and he's too scared to answer. Lowe's eyes seem to bulge as he repeats his question. Ashton opens his mouth but finds he cannot make a sound. Then, Lowe lifts his pistol and points it directly at Ashton's forehead. He cocks the flintlock hammer. You dog, he shouts. Why don't you answer me? Shocked out of his confusion, Ashton sputters the truth. No, sir, I'm unmarried. Lowe's fury instantly dissipates. He lowers his weapon and nods. Then he asks the same question to the other prisoners. He seems satisfied when, unsurprisingly, they all answer as Ashton did. He announces to the men that this is their lucky day. Each of them has been presented with an opportunity to make a fortune for themselves as part of his pirate crew. It's a more enriching life than being a fisherman, he grins. Lowe produces a series of documents. He explains that these are articles of agreement that everyone in his crew must sign. It will secure them their fair share of any plunder they seize. He then steps towards Philip Ashton, with the document in one hand, a quill pen in the other, and a threatening expression on his face. By adding his name to the pirate account, Ashton knows he could well be signing his own death sentence. Then again, what choice does he have? By signing the Articles of Agreement, you are signaling your allegiance to your new pirate occupation, even if it's grudging. There was some value, it was almost a contract amongst the pirates. So Philip Ashton wasn't married, so he was a prime opportunity for Lowe to gain a new crew member who wasn't married and had attachments on land. And all pirates operating during this period, when they forced men to join their crew, because their own ranks were depleted, they wanted them to sign the Articles of Agreement. And I don't think it mattered to the captain whether that was done grudgingly or willingly. And many men did it willingly. And originally, of course, Lowe hoped that Ashton and the other Marbleheaders and the other fishermen that he had captured in Port Roseway would sign on willingly. But Philip Ashton is a God-fearing, law-abiding man. He has no intention of selling his soul to a pirate like Ned Lowe. 
nor hanging for someone else's crimes. He refuses. Menacingly, Lo assures him that he will be persuaded to change his mind before long. Ashton braces himself to endure terrible torture and begins to tremble. And then, to Ashton's great surprise, Ned reaches forward and gives him a warm embrace. I like you, Ashton, he tells the astonished fisherman. We shall be friends in time. Over the next few months, in spite of his terrible reputation, Ned and his crew launch a charm offensive on Ashton and the other reluctant captives. It's never good to have somebody in your crew who is actively plotting your overthrow or is always trying to escape or can't be relied upon during a battle. So that's why in the months after Ashton was captured, and forced to join the crew, he was often plied with liquor, which he often refused, by the other crewmen and basically told by them, listen, we're not so bad, join us. You can share in the booty. This is a great life. Have fun, relax. Stop being such a stick in the mud. I mean, they used, I'm sure, much more colorful language. Over the following months, Philip Ashton is tempted with magnificent riches if he will only embrace the pirate life. At other times, he endures physical tortures as Lowe's vicious crew attempt to beat him into submission. But Ashton will remain steadfast in his refusal to turn pirate, and he knows that if he is to survive this ordeal, he must somehow devise an escape. And soon. Next week, on Real Pirates. As he sails his new ship towards Brazil, Ned's behavior becomes even more monstrous. Encountering a Portuguese ship, he will commit an atrocity so horrific that it will secure his reputation as one of the worst pirates to have ever sailed the high seas. Meanwhile, Philip Ashton begins to understand his captor a little better and he will eventually risk his life in a desperate bid to escape. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Beckson. Written by James Benmore. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Mixmaster by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.